from the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Ivan Villarreal. And I'm your other host, Mark Olson. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. You know, Mark, today marks my one-year anniversary of working from home. I think everyone's been thinking about when their sort of pandemic officially started, and it trips me out that it has been a year. Yeah, well, to me, the pandemic sort of really started on the day when they canceled the South by Southwest festival. I had been planning to go the following week, and and it was, I think, basically this week last year. Yeah, that to me is when I was like, oh, this is all very real and like really happening and, you know, impacting me personally. And so that was when it was like, oh. I remember very specifically one morning getting up and going to a grocery store and it just being utter chaos. Well, it's funny because I was supposed to moderate a panel at the Paley Fest for one day at a time, and it was approaching, approaching, and they hadn't canceled it. And I'm like, I don't want to do it. I'm scared. We got to think about Rita Moreno and Norman Lear, like their safety. And I was like, are they going to cancel it? Are they gonna... And it was like literally at the 11th hour. It was just very stressful. But, you know, TV and film have sort of been the saving grace of this time, like have really helped us, you know, get through everything. So tell me who you're talking to on the show today. Well, today I sat down with Shaka King, a director, co-writer and producer of Judas and the Black Messiah. The film tells the story of Black Panther leader Fred Hampton and William O'Neill, the FBI informant whose information led to Hampton being killed by law enforcement. It just has these stellar performances from Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, and Dominique Fishback. And the movie is just so, so powerful. It's really given me a window into a group of people who really sacrificed so much and have suffered so much trauma. It's actually a heavy thing to sit with. You know, these events 51 years ago, they'll never stop reverberating. And, you know, there are a lot of Panthers who are still in prison as elders. And so it's just like a lot of gratitude, I feel, but also just a lot of weight and uh, to some degree responsibility. It sounds like making this movie really gave Shaka a window into the world of the people whose lives were affected by Fred and his assassination. Yes, we talk about all that and even how Shaka sort of came to the project in the first place and a big part of this started in his backyard. Wow, well, I'm looking forward to hearing that. But first, let's take a short break. Hi, this is Harry Littman, LA Times legal columnist and host of the Talking Feds podcast, a roundtable discussion that brings together prominent former government officials, journalists, and special guests. This year, we're covering everything you need to know about the presidential transition with guests that include Valerie Jarrett, Senator Amy Klobuchar, and Congressman Jamie Raskin. So tune in everywhere that you find podcasts. Before we get to Mark's conversation, let's kick it over to our columnist, Glenn Whip for his awards minute. Wonder what Glenn's got for us this week. Oscar nominations are Monday morning, but 
Bear with me. One more thing about the Golden Globes. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association has pledged to do better, to clean up all those ethical lapses and try to recruit some black journalists. The HFP announced this promise of what they called transformational change on its Twitter account on a Saturday night, basically kind of burying it. It was the equivalent of having its three board members on the Golden Globes telecast. They spent all of like, what, 40 seconds, five sentences apologizing. And given its history, it's hard to believe the HFPA will change or police its members in any kind of meaningful way, which is why, as I wrote in a recent column, it's time for NBC just to do the right thing and excise this tumor from the award season. It's not like there aren't alternatives. One of them would be the Screen Actors Guild Awards, which, like the Globes, honor both film and television. So you could still have all the stars in the same room, just make it earlier in the season. Awards are only meaningful if the group bestowing them has integrity. And the Hollywood Foreign Press Association fails that standard. Jessing the Globes wouldn't be hard. NBC just needs the resolve to stop enabling this charade and move forward with a worthier alternative. Thank you, Glenn. And now let's get to Mark's conversation with Shaka King about Judas and the Black Messiah. Shaka, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I know I'm particularly excited to be having this conversation with you. I don't expect you to remember this. I first spoke to you when your film Newlyweeds was playing at the Sundance Film Festival in around 2013 or so. And to me, it's so exciting to see a filmmaker like you start out, you know, with a sort of a modest film at Sundance and to now be making a film of sort of the scope and ambition of Judas and the Black Messiah. Does this film feel like a leap forward for you? Did it feel like you were sort of stepping up to something bigger and and more ambitious with this movie? Definitely. I mean, uh, definitely much bigger, much more ambitious. The truth of the matter is, is that in a lot of ways, Newlyweeds was just as ambitious for me because it was my first feature. You know, I'd only made shorts prior, so I had no idea if I could actually do it. I hoped I could, but I had no idea. Whereas this still feels like a tremendous leap, you know, for a myriad of reasons, budget and working with the studio and that process and experience, but also it being uh, about a person who lived and about people who were living. It made it a far more ambitious thing than, you know, Newlyweeds was. And then the the work that you've been doing since Newlyweeds, you've been working quite a bit in television, but it mostly has been sitcoms, comedies. Tell me about this sort of shift to, to drama with Judas and the Black Messiah. Did that also feel like another sort of change for you with this project? That The drama side of it didn't because even the comedic stuff I was doing and, and even Newlyweeds, there was a, enough drama in those. It was never like I, you know, there was some broad comedy of the stuff I was doing, but it's never like the stuff I was doing was explicitly comedic. There were always elements of drama within that material. So I felt very comfortable directing drama. What was more so new to me, excuse me, was um, action. That was new terrain for me. There was a learning curve uh, in terms of learning how to shoot action. And, you know, and, and I think I still have a lot more to learn in that regard. Please tell me if I'm sort of like misunderstanding this, but the origins of the project, there were actually two separate Fred Hampton projects, presumably competing 
projects, one written by Will Burson, the other written by the Lucas Brothers, and they've kind of been folded together to create Judas and the Black Messiah. Just tell me about that that process. That seems unusual. Well, what happened was the Lucas Brothers had a pitch that they'd been taking around the studios, which was basically they wanted to make The Departed inside of the world of COINTELPRO, COINTELPRO being uh, the FBI's counterintelligence program uh, that existed during the 60s and 70s and was designed to stop any activity that J. Edgar Hoover deemed radical. Obviously, it was their way of telling it was, you know, it was about Fred Hampton and William O'Neill. And the way we talked about it was it was like, um, it was almost like your Trojan horse singer Fred Hampton biopic inside of a undercover crime drama. And so, you know, the three of us teamed up and were developing that piece of material. When we got a call from Jermaine Fowler, who plays Mark Clark in our film, that his friend Will Burson had more traditional Fred Hampton biopic that he was developing. He already had a script. The Lucas Brothers had a two-page outline that I turned to like 10 pages, something in there. Then Will joined. Basically, we went to Will after reading his script and liking, you know, certain elements of it, specifically Fred's parents had a big role in that screenplay, even though that got jettisoned once we collaborated together. He also, I thought, had done some really remarkable stuff with Deborah Jonathan's character, um, some of which, you know, we folded into this combo version that we did. But basically, we, we recruited Will and brought Will on board. And then Will and I set about writing a screenplay based off of the idea that the Lucas Brothers had had. So it was a page one rewrite, basically, from once Will and I got together. And then Ryan Coogler is a producer on the movie, and you, as I understand, met him when you were at, at Sundance. And just tell me a little bit about that relationship and how he came to be involved with the project as well. So Ryan and I met at Sundance in 2013 when I was there with New Louise, and he was there with Fruitvale. And uh, we became friends soon after. And, uh, you know, just been... Anytime he comes to New York, he visits because he and Zinzi, uh, his wife and producing partner, have become good friends with my parents as well. And so uh, one day, I think it was the summer of 2017, we were hanging out in my backyard eating some food. He asked what I was working on, and I told him, I saw a look in his eye as, you know, I started to talk about the, the idea. And so I called him once Will and I finished, and I said, hey, are you interested in coming on board as a producer? And he said, you know, it's funny, Zinzi and I had just been speaking about how we thought a, they were looking to, you know, start a production company working with Macro to just, you know, start producing movies that he wasn't attached to direct. But in addition to that, they really thought the idea that I pitched in my backyard was something that they could really get behind. So he joined the team and immediately brought Charles on board. And Charles agreed to finance half of the film, which is such a rarity. I mean, it's rare that, you know, producers willing to kind of throw that kind of weight behind a picture like this. You know, Macro and Proximity, myself uh, and Will started to develop this script that we'd already written. We had about a, probably a year-long development process with Macro and Proximity, where uh, we probably wrote about, you know, anywhere between seven to ten drafts, something in there. And then once we finished that, we took it to the studios. And then what was that process like? Because I would imagine for you as someone coming from the independent filmmaking world, to suddenly have, you know, Ryan Coogler after the success of Black Panther, to have someone like Charles King in your corner as well. Like, did you feel that doors that had previously been shut to you were suddenly 
opening or was because of the nature of the project, was it still a struggle to get this financed and set up? It's a good question because, you know, in addition to the two of them, we also, by the, by the time we approached the studios, we had Lakeith and Daniel attached uh, as our stars and we had Dominique attached as well. We were going with what I felt like was quite a bounty. And I thought that we honestly, you know, have a bidding war. And so I was surprised when Warner Brothers was the only studio that was interested in, you know, stepping up to the plate and supporting a movie of this scale. We weren't going to be able to get it in the can for, you know, $5 million somewhere. And I wasn't even close to the figure that we'd be able to get it, you know, in the can for him. You know, a lot of the responses we were getting were like five to 10 mil we can support, but anything over that, we don't think this movie is going to make its money back, which, you know, was insane. I'd heard in another interview where you said along those lines that in Hollywood, even the math is racist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, like, yeah, like, like you know, the, I, that quote I, I said specifically around um, this one in, interaction we had with a, a studio that wanted the movie and really put together, like, really an incredible presentation just in terms of how they were going to market the film and really were into the film's politics. When we initially met with the studio, it was the weekend that Black Klansman was opening. We were all talking about, you know, going to see it, and one of the studio you know, execs we were speaking to said, oh, that movie's going movie's gonna to bomb. And we were like, what are you talking about? Like, the buzz is crazy. Everyone's just excited to see it. Everyone I know is going to see it this weekend. He said, well, you know, our, you know, numbers guys crunch the numbers and, you know, the algorithm says it's going to tank. Um, and so obviously, you know, the movie's a tremendous success. And later down the line, when it's time for the studio to sort of make their bid and when they lowballed us, I wrote to that exec and I said, I don't understand. You, you said you all wanted this movie. You know how much it costs. Why are you, why are you lowballing us? And he said, well, you know, we, we, our, our numbers guys crunched the numbers and uh, they said, you know, it, it, there's no way this movie is going to make back the kind of money that it should in order for us to justify spending how much you're asking for. And I said, but isn't that the same formula and the same cast of characters who said that Black Klansman was going to flop? Like, how are you still, you know, utilizing that, that formula? Like, and how does that guy still have a job? And he didn't respond. You know, he just was like, I'm sorry, we can't make the movie. But, that, I mean, it was telling to me. It's just like, if it's strictly about the numbers and the math and, and the profit, then make it so. It, it clearly isn't. There's clearly other, other things at play here, whether, you know, those things being intentional or whether they're just systemic and these folks aren't aware of them. But like, I'm certainly making it aware to you now when I tell you, look, you told me at this time that this thing wasn't going to make money and yet using that same formula to justify how the thing I'm telling you is going to make money isn't going to make money. Something's wrong here, you know? And I want to be sure to just talk about the, the structure of the movie. Like To me, it's instead of having it be just a straightforward biopic of Fred Hampton, as you said, there's a little bit of a Trojan horse going on, but the way that you go about that by focusing on the character of William O'Neill, you know, played by the Keith Stanfield, who's the FBI informant who betrays Fred Hampton, how did you sort of come upon that structuring idea and to have so much emphasis on William even in telling Fred's story? I mean, it was a little bit baked in the framework and, you know, Lucas Brothers saying, you know, hey, we want to make The Departed inside the world. When they, when they say The Departed, it's like, okay, you're at least looking at William O'Neill having 
you know, almost equal screen time as, as Fred. Um, you know, he's just essential a character of the narrative. But when I kind of sat with it and thought about it, there were a number of reasons why I thought it was a compelling choice to go in that direction. For one, Fred Hampton was one way. He came into this world in a lot of ways with a fully formed sense of who he was based on all the conversations I had with people who knew him. You know, this was someone whose phone was tapped at age 14. So it was very early on that he kind of knew what he wanted to do and knew what he stood for. Whereas, you know, William O'Neill is the one who kind of has a choice to make. He's the one who's kind of has a dramatic narrative in the sense of like inner conflict and turmoil and things that he's struggling with. So in a lot of ways, just from a sort of dramatic standpoint, that makes him a more interesting protagonist. I think from a political standpoint, I think like a lot of times biopics can be really hagiographic, and especially something like this, where you're talking about someone who actually, I, I had a hard time finding any flaws in this person as a person. You know, I, I think for me, I'm always looking for like, again, from a dramatic perspective, like the most sort of compelling person is the person who has things that they're sort of sorting through. I think from a political perspective, for me, it was like, what's the greatest use that a movie like this can have? Like, what can be some of, sort of the, some of the takeaways beyond, you know, obviously bringing to light, you know, the state's history of repressing voices of dissent, right? And sort of black, giving a black eye to this idea of like, you know, American exceptionalism and liberty and freedom and all that bullshit that they kind of have stuffed on our throats forever. Uh, and that was like, okay, what can anyone kind of glean from this? Let's, let's like explore how dangerous it is to be apolitical. And to me, like that was another good reason to sort of centralize William O'Neill, because I, I think that that's just something interesting to explore, the dangers of being an, an apolitical person. And can you tell me a little bit more about the, essentially the politics of, of the movie, the in what Fred is espousing and the way that we see him, the Panthers food programs, their educational programs, but also within the city of Chicago. I mean, it's a kind of a joke in the film that he brings together rednecks and Puerto Ricans. Were you surprised at all that, you know, you were making this studio financed movie that has kind of radical politics at its at its core? Yeah, no, I mean, I I, um, I was aware of, of that and it was baked into the movie and that was the reason for making that was a big reason for making the movie. And, and you know, I, I mean, there's no other reason to make the movie. Like when you read Fred Hampton's words and you see these ideas that are his ideas, but really the Panthers platform as an organization, it's their ideas. When you read them and, and you see how much sense they make and you realize that a lot of these ideas have just been withheld, you know, this idea of what the Panthers really stood for and just portrayed them as like, gun-toting thugs, essentially, and terrorists and militants. I just felt like it was important to just, like, show them in their full holistic greatness. You know what I'm saying? These are, like, thinkers and philosophers and, like, just, like, brilliant young minds, you know, and, and we have an opportunity to kind of put that information out there. And for, for me, it was like, what's going to be the sort of candy-coated shell to sort of give you this medicine inside of? You know what I'm saying? So the genre elements serve that purpose. But in terms of what the movie is at its core, you know, it's it's essentially a kind of a exploration of what is a sort of socialist cultural aesthetic versus what is a capitalist cultural aesthetic. 
And, and I hope that shines through. Because the thing I'm always so shocked by is just how young Fred was. And it's something that's actually hard, I think, to depict in the movie in part because of Daniel's age. But it, like, it is just shocking to me that he was as young and, as you said, as fully formed as he, as he was. You know, there are a number of things I wish, you know, we could have done, like shooting Chicago, for example. But one of them is, like, Daniel's 31, Fred passed at 21 years old. And there's just nothing that could be done about that. I mean, I do feel like so much of Fred's youth is contained in the way he delivered his words. He was very witty. He was very profane in a way that made his stuff like hit. You know, like when I read it, it just reads like he reads like a real person. And he's presenting these like very heady ideas that, you know, an academic would use $20,000 million words to express. And he expresses them in like very just like digestible English. So I felt like his youth in a lot of ways was going to come through his words and Dale's performance to some degree, even though I think Dale, we all did, we kind of leaned more into sort of Fred's maturity because that was also, you know, the thing about Fred that I read and heard from people who knew him was that he had incredible maturity and gravitas, like, you know, that of a man, you know, 20 years his senior, 30 years his senior, but he also had a real youthfulness a youthful energy to him and youthful charisma. And so he was like that perfect combination of these two sort of like just polar opposite energies. And the goal was for Dale to sort of try to present that. Like obviously it would have been better if he looked 10 years younger, but he can only do so much, you know? I mean, trust me, there's nothing to complain about in that performance. It is so incredible, strong. Yeah. Yeah. And really a centerpiece scene in the movie is when, Daniel's delivering uh, the I am a revolutionary speech that that Fred gives. And one of the things I like about that scene so much is that there's so much happening story-wise. There's so many different sort of strands that like come together in that room when all the characters sort of are there at once. But at the same time, it is so rousing and so exciting in Daniel's delivery of that speech. Just what was shooting a, a scene like that like? It was the most fun. To start with, like you said, it's the junction of all of these characters' storylines. It's only him speaking. So it's just reactions. It's just shot, reverse shot, Lakeith's face, Jesse's face, Dominique's face, and then just emoting and feeling what they feel in the moment and, and it connecting these different strands narratively and dramatically. But the thing that was most fun, obviously, was just Daniel's first take. He comes up the stairs, right? And the crowd goes insane. They treated him like Shaman Fred. So when he came and he took that stage, he wasn't acting. Like, he was really in that space, giving that speech. And everyone in that crowd was reacting to them. It was really, everyone was transported to a different time. There are other days that are special days. But that, to me, was the one day I can remember I was like, we kind of stepped into a time warp here. Like... People treated him like Chairman Fred Hampton that day. It was nuts. A perfect glass of wine makes all the difference. And the LA Times Wine Club, powered by First Leaf, can deliver that and more right to your front door. All you have to do is take a short quiz to determine your preferences. Then six bottles of award-winning wine personalized to your taste will be shipped directly to you. 
you'll get six bottles of wine for only $39.95, plus free shipping. Sign up today at latimes.wine slash podcast. Throughout the film, Daniel, Lakeith, but also Jesse Plemons, and I think for a lot of people, the big surprise of the movie, Dominique Fishback, you have actors who are just really bringing it. And for you as a director... What do you do to either elevate that or is like your job at that point to just stay out of their way? Your job has been to get them to that place. And then it's to shape and try to get as much interesting stuff out of, you know, out of them as possible. And it was a joy. It's the ultimate collaboration because like, you know, I also co-wrote it. So when I'm writing it, I'm seeing them and I'm seeing the movie in my head. I'm seeing the movie I want to make. But then when you get the real people, it's an opportunity to make something so much better than what you made. They were just constantly elevating what we wrote. But it was, yeah, it was just a joy to get them to that space. The style of the movie, it has this kind of really gritty feel of like sort of a 70s or 80s crime thriller, like, say, Prince of the City or The French Connection. But there's also this kind of moodiness that's kind of unexpected that to me, the movie it kept bringing to mind was the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And I'm wondering for you, what were some of the like references or what were some of the movies that you were thinking about as you were sort of conceiving of the style of the movie? Prince of the City was one. No Country for Old Men was another. When We Were Kings, that close-up that you see of Daniel at the... I mean, you see it... Tw- we employ it twice, but it's really... I think it really... We nailed it in the um, speech at the church. The one from the side, he kind of goes in and he goes out. That's from When We Were Kings. You know, we're shooting these scenes we have a you know we had a number of speeches and you know reading fred's words and seeing him deliver those words when you look at old footage of him he's like the first mc you know what i mean like he really is emceeing and dale and i would talk about that like you know I, <laughs> like one of the first meetings we had we were talking about like how fred modulates his his speech because dale had a really crazy challenge in terms of this dialect because, you know, Fred Hampton spoke very quickly. He had a sort of nasal quality to his tone. I think he might have had a deviated septum. He had a bit of a Louisiana Southern drawl. His family was from Louisiana. And he had a little bit of a Chicago Midwest accent going on. It's just a lot of different things at once. And when you hear Fred Hampton speak, sometimes you can't understand what he's saying. So it is the audio quality of the recording, but a lot of it also is, is his tonality. We couldn't, you know, the comparison we would make is like Jamie Foxx doing Ray versus, you know, Denzel doing Malcolm X. Jamie Foxx does a spot on impression of Ray. We couldn't do a spot on impression of Fred Hampton because then we probably, you know, we even had to do a lot of, some, a significant amount of ADR work just because you would have needed subtitles, you know, if, if we'd done a straight up imitation. So we decided to go more Denzel and Malcolm X in terms of his interpretation where you kind of feel like it's close enough the way you see Malcolm but it's an interpretation. So that's the direction that, that Daniel went. But I remember we were talking about Fred and, and, you know, when Fred is just having a normal conversation and you observe this in footage of, you know, the actual Fred Hampton, there's one sort of tone to him. And then when he's addressing a massive crowd of people, it's a different animal. I was like, it's like Buster Rhymes. You know what I mean? Like this old song Buster Rhymes had called Touch It, where he like demonstrates, you know, sort of the like, you know, 
low key version and the and the high key version and and Dale that's that's sort of how he approached it. Um, I bring up Buster Rhymes to to bring it all back to this idea of MCing. It's like if Fred is the first MC, then you know, like how we're shooting this like a concert. You know what I mean? So okay, let me go look at some old concert footage from that era. And then I remember we were watching when we were Kings, Sean and I, and we saw that was a shot they employed a number of times. It's crazy close. You see it on Miriam Bakiba. You see it on James Brown, I think, too. And we were like, yeah, we got, I was like, we need that. We need that. And, and it, I think it, it, it plays really well. But uh, so, yeah, we, we, we had a myriad of, of influences. Friends of Eddie Coyle was another we watched. Um, oh, Heat. My God, how could I forget? Heat was a big, big, big influence for us. I want to be sure to ask you, it feels a little funny to be talking about spoilers. I don't want to necessarily give away the ending of the movie or the way that you end the movie, but I was so fascinated how there comes to be this feeling of inevitability about what is coming. I think, you know, as a viewer, you know what happens to Fred. And yet in the story, it starts to feel like that's almost like the only thing that's going to happen. There's an inevitability to it. And was it difficult for you to figure out how to modulate that and how to sort of like build up to those final moments of Fred's life? Oh, wow. Let me think back. I knew that a number of people were going to know how the movie ends. But also, you're making it for people who know the history and people who don't. And obviously, like, the goal is to get those people who know how it ends and who don't to stick with you the entire time. You know, I think as much as people know about the act, they don't know about the interactions between the players that led to the final act. And we had to, you know, extrapolate and make up and fill in the blanks and create, you know, scenarios. But I think that there's a lot of drama to that. There's a lot of drama to the, to the how did we get here. And so I was just like leaning into that and focusing on that. So much of, you know, what happens at the end is the result of the decisions that William O'Neill has made throughout the course of his journey. So much of that is tied into how he feels about what he's doing, particularly in the back half of the film. You know, even if his politics haven't drastically shifted, he's developed a closeness to these individuals where it's, it's a little bit more difficult for him to do the things that he's doing. And then he's asked to commit the ultimate act of betrayal. It's a difficult place to be in. It's a tight squeeze. So it, it wasn't like I had to really focus on how do I balance the inevitability. It was just focusing on the drama. And then tell me a little bit more about Lakeith's performance and and the portrayal of William O'Neill. I think, to me, the way in which you sort of use that footage from Eyes on the Prize 2 as a, as a structuring device in the movie, we see it with Lakeith at first, and then later we see the, the real William O'Neill. And when you see that final footage of the real William O'Neill, you feel like you know him in such a deep way because of the performance that Lakeith has given sympathy is maybe an awkward word or not the right way to describe it, but how did you kind of want audiences to come away from this feeling about William? Hmm. Um, sympathy isn't the right word. I think empathy, though, is closer. To me, like, the movie's a tragedy because it starts with a guy, like, saying what he wants and then getting what he wants and being miserable about what he has. You know, so... I think I, I, I wanted it to feel like a cautionary tale. And I wanted the viewer to be able to identify in a lot of ways, like the William O'Neill inside of them. You just, you have to see some humanity in, in him. I could have portrayed him in 
Mitchell is just like pure villains. But then it's very easy to dismiss the actions that they took. And it, I think, makes the viewing experience a lot more distanced versus because, you know, me, I'm, I, I as I'm creating these characters, developing these characters, thinking about their motivations, thinking how could they get themselves in this position? What were they thinking? What did they want? And when you go through those processes, you just create a real human being. You create a real flawed human being. And I think that the ultimate takeaway is that really that, you know, this was a real flawed human being who made like terrible decisions, but also was operating within a political and cultural and really social framework that didn't give him a lot of wiggle room in terms of even conceiving of what a good life could look like, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now for you, since considering how long you've been working on this project, how much time you've spent considering, you know, Fred's life, does he mean something different to you now than when you began the project? Like, how do you conceive of Fred now? What does he, what does he mean to you personally? Well, man, I mean, it's like, honestly, it's so much greater than what he as an individual means to me just because making this film has put me in contact with so many people who knew and loved him and whose lives were so deeply affected by him and by his assassination that, you know, it's really given me a window into a group of people who really sacrificed so much and suffered and have suffered so much trauma that it's actually a heavy thing to sit with. It's a very, very, very heavy thing to sit with because you're talking about a lot of people who these events 51 years ago, they'll never stop reverberating. And there are a lot of Panthers who are still in prison as elders. And so it's just like a lot of gratitude, I feel, but also just a lot of weight and uh, to some degree responsibility. And then considering all that's happened in the United States just over the past year, all the protests, all the conflict, what does it mean to you that this movie is coming out now? Like, I mean, the movie, you've been working on it for a while. It could have come out, you know, over the last few years, just about any time. There have even been some delays in it being released in the form it is now. So to you, what does it mean to have it actually coming out right now? It just kind of feels like it's meant to be, you know? I mean, uh, throughout the making of this process, you know, like they have, you know, the term movie magic, you know, and so much is made of how, like, you know, making any movie requires um, some level of magic, but making a movie that has some, some heft to it that's good it requires even, even loads more. And so we, throughout this process, so many things have reminded me that this feels like very much meant to be. And, you know, the state of the world uh, and the way that this movie is being released in terms of just so many more people having an opportunity to watch it than would have it, it feels like that's why it was made when it was made. Because people have been trying to make a Fred Hampton, great filmmakers have been trying to make a Fred Hampton movie for decades, and it could never come together. So I think there's a reason why it came together now. Shaka, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. I just have one more question for you. As we've been having conversations with people, you know, everybody's kind of been in the same situation for almost a year now, stuck inside so much, and so people have been doing a lot of watching 
And so I want to ask you if there's anything that you've, you know, watched recently or, or during your time at home that really has stuck out for you that, that maybe you would want to recommend to, to other people. Yeah, the two, two of the best things I've ever seen in my life are I May Destroy You and Small Axe. Those are two of the best things I've ever seen in my entire life. So I would highly recommend both of those. And what is it about those projects that really spoke to you? I May Destroy You, I think she just, Michaela Cole, just makes consistently in every regard the most interesting choice, dramatically. I feel like she probably, I don't know anything about her process, but I feel like she probably writes things that are great and then blows them up because like, she's like, can that be more interesting? <laughs> you know, It makes for just... I could never get ahead of what she was doing. Never. Never could get ahead of what she was doing. She just is the best. And then Small Axe, it's the specificity is so incredible. And, I mean, he's just the best. I mean, there's so many scenes, so many ranges of emotion, so many scenes that just, like, got you such great performances. And then in Lover's Rock, you know, I'm a music psycho. I love music so much. And so I've always, you know, wanted to do something, to make something that, like a movie or a TV show, something just to sort of show what it's like to love music, that captured the feeling of loving music in visuals and sound. And he did it. He did it in Lover's Rock, where most of that movie in my mind is just people enjoying music, (laughs) you know? Like a lot of it is just people enjoying music. And it's so much fun to watch. And the fact that he cracked that code is like just a testament to his greatness. Mark, hearing him talk about writing seven to ten drafts of the movie script blew my mind. And maybe that's common in screenwriting, but have you ever written seven to ten drafts of anything? Well, I mean, we're sort of like dealing with daily deadlines, so it's we don't have the time. But, you know, it's funny, I mentioned this in the interview, but I had interviewed Shaka King previously when his previous feature film, Newlyweeds, had been at Sundance. And in so many ways, like this really is like why I like doing the work that I do, why to me going to film festivals and meeting sort of young emerging filmmakers is so important because to like have met him and spoken to him a few years ago and to now see him develop to make this film, which feels so intense, so much more kind of monumental than what I think you might have expected from him. I just find that thrilling. I mean, it really, it, I'm, I'm not kidding when it's like, it, it's a big part of like why I like doing this work is exactly to watch someone like Shaka develop into making a movie like Judas and the Black Messiah. Well, yeah. And Fred Hampton also is a character in the trial of the Chicago seven, right? So it's been interesting to see him really, you know, for people who don't know a lot about him, learn more about, you know, his legacy. And something I've heard Daniel Kaluuya in particular, I mean, he spoke about this uh, in his Golden Globes acceptance speech is that with Judas and the Black Messiah, most people that even do know about Fred Hampton know about the circumstances of his death. And it's exciting and I think important to have, with this film in particular, people learn about the circumstances, how he lived his life and what what it meant and the work that he did. And so I think people are getting this fuller portrait of who kind of Fred Hampton was and what his life meant. Well, before we wrap things up, you know, we got to talk about what we've been watching, Mark. And I don't know about you, but... I have been on a real world rewatch binge because of this reunion. 
and I made it through to London. Mind you, I was I was too young to watch these seasons when they first came out, but I do have memories of them from like cousins or whatever. But to rewatch them has been like such a mind trip and it's like being with like a cup of soup. It just soothes my soul. Were you someone that watched Real World growing up? Uh, well, now you've dated me, Yvonne, because I do remember the first season of The Real World. It was something that, it was one of those things you kind of were a little bit aware of it. I like watched some of it, but didn't really like follow it necessarily. And it was the same for like a lot of subsequent seasons where like you'd kind of get a gist of like who was involved or what the hook of the location or the season was. Whatever. We can talk about my relationship to reality TV, but like I don't watch a lot of reality TV. So I was never a dedicated follower. But now how does this reunion play? Like to me, like I don't, I'm concerned that their lives all turned out sad. Like, is it, is it, what is it like catching back up with them? I mean, this is the kind of reunion I like versus like, I'm not very much excited about a Frasier reunion or something like that, a reboot, whatever. This is the stuff I like. I've only watched one episode because I'm trying to pace myself, but I enjoy it so far. It's fun to see them, you know, be together again. Many of them have stayed in touch through the years. Um, So I, I enjoy it. Is there any like show you would be game to have a reunion for or you're just like not into the idea at all? Yeah, I'm not. I can't think of any where I'm like super excited for it. I don't know, maybe Cheers just to find out what happened to everybody from from Cheers is like the first one that comes to my mind. But I can't, I guess that's our Frasier reboot and that's the thing. Like nobody wants that. So I'll, I'll abstain. I can't think of any that I really like want to. <laughs> well, what have you been watching? Well, I uh, still have kind of been watching a lot of uh, screeners for some festivals that are coming up. And then I had an interview that I've got coming up that I had to do some like sort of watching of older movies. So I haven't really watched any new Shows, although I think my favorite or kind of the most interesting thing that I've watched for the first time was sometimes you have to listen to the universe, Yvonne. And I recently, off of Turner Classic Movies, I had taped this movie from 1979 called The China Syndrome, which stars Jane Fonda, Michael Douglas, and Jack Lemmon. It's the story of like an emergency at a nuclear power plant, and Jane Fonda plays this young TV reporter who sort of like uh, is investigating what happens at the at the plant. And so after, you know, Jane Fonda gave that great speech recently, it was like, oh, well, I obviously have to watch China Syndrome now. And I I really enjoyed it. It was like just a really strong, slightly torn from the headlines, but I think it was actually a little ahead of the curve on some of these things. Dramatic thriller. It's got amazing 70s clothes. Michael Douglas has amazing 70s hair. I'm contemplating if I want to get a thin gold chain. I would recommend the China Syndrome for all sorts of reasons. Is that available to stream? I might want to watch it tonight. Yeah, I think it's it is streaming on a couple different sites and it definitely is available sort of as a, a like a, a rental from some of the sites. Okay. Well, Mark, the guest you're talking to next week really cleaned up at the Globes. Uh, that's right. I'll be talking to Sasha Baron Cohen. We'll be talking about the trial of the Chicago 7 as well as Borat's subsequent movie film. He's someone who famously did not do a lot of press for a lot of his career. And just, you know, sort of this cycle, he's really emerged and has been talking as Sasha Baron Cohen a lot more than he frankly ever has before. And it's just exciting to hear from him. He's a a very intelligent, very thoughtful person. These films, both of the projects that he has right now are very much like speaking to this 
moment. And so I think it's something, it's been very exciting, I think, to see him sort of emerge as like a, a person and not just as the characters that he plays. Well, speaking of which, let's hear a preview of that conversation. I realized very early on with Borat, prior to even realizing there was a comedy character, that Borat was a mechanism to get people to open up far more than they would do on documentaries because they felt they were talking to somebody from a different country and that footage would not be seen, you know, by their colleagues and those who would um, criticize them. So, you know, at its core, this style of comedy was a way to show the underbelly of society, what people would really talk about behind closed doors. That's going to be a good one. Come back next week to hear more from Mark's conversation with Sasha Baron Cohen. The Envelope, the podcast, is hosted by me, Yvonne Villarreal, and by my colleague, Mark Olson. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our audio engineer is Mike Heflin, and he also made our theme song. If you like The Envelope, the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star review on Apple. The Envelope is created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.